Now, please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9, we will read verses 22 until verse 2 of chapter 10. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Amen. Last time I was with you, we started to consider the doctrine of public worship. And we looked specifically at Leviticus chapter 9. And in considering this chapter, we had discussed the overall theme of Leviticus as a whole. We mentioned that this book focuses on turning the tabernacle merely from the dwelling place of God into the tent of meeting a place in which man could seek fellowship and communion with God. We saw at the end of Exodus that when the tabernacle was completed, that Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting. And why not? It was because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Remember, God is is much too holy And we are much too sinful to casually walk into the presence of God. There needed to be some kind of setting apart, some kind of sanctification of the people in order for God to dwell with them. And so if the Israelites were ever going to be able to dwell with God in the place that he promised them, if they were going to be able to meet with God in the tent of meeting then God would have to make a way for man to be sanctified. And as we saw last week, that's what God did. God made a way through the institutions of the sacrifices and in the consecration of the priesthood. The Old Testament sacrifices were God's appointed means of dealing with sin. The Israelites would place their hands upon the sacrifice, symbolically laying their sins on the animal. And the animal would be killed in the place of the sinner, acting as their substitute, standing in their place, bearing the wrath of God against their sins. And the priesthood was the means by which the Israelites were able to draw near to God. The priests stood in that gap between the holy presence of God and the sinful Israelites. And they would offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. 
And they would stand before God as an intercessor for the people. And they would function as a representative for the people. And what we gathered from these things is essentially, first, that true worship seeks communion with God. This was the whole purpose of of instituting this formal public worship, for man to have communion with God. Secondly, we saw that true worship obeys God's commands. Since we, by our sin, have broken fellowship with God, he sets the rules on how we can commune with him again. And third, we saw that true worship is by faith in Jesus Christ. We must come through to God through this priest. We must appeal to his sacrifice. Because it's, it's through Christ and Christ alone that we can truly be cleansed from our sins. It's by Christ and Christ alone that we can truly have access to God. And so we must come to God through Christ. This morning, we'll consider the, the, the way that we are to properly approach God in public worship. That's ultimately what worship is. It's making an approach unto God or a drawing near to God, as we see in verse 3 of Leviticus chapter 10. And now, we, we can approach God in a variety of ways. We can approach him personally in our private worship. We can approach him more corporately in our family worship. But specifically today, we'll consider the public worship of God. That is, the worship which we offer God when we congregate as a church and are publicly called for a time of divine worship. And as we'll see, God is very particular about the way in which he should be approached the way in which he should be worshipped during these times of stated worship. When God describes how he feels, so to speak, about his worship, he says time and time again that he is a jealous God. In the second commandment, which describes not just who we are to worship, but how we are to worship, we read this. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 34, God even goes so far as to say, the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, when we think of jealousy, we might think that it's something negative. And many times, when we, as humans, are jealous, we're jealous for the wrong reasons. And our jealousy is often sinful. We might see someone who has something, or they're blessed in a certain way, and we wish that blessing for ourselves. We start to think, why can't I have that instead? But that's not what God means 
when he calls himself jealous. Now, God's jealousy is a holy zeal to protect what's rightfully his. It's God seeking to protect his glory and his honor from being given to someone or something other than himself. God is adamant that he will not share his glory with anyone or anything outside of himself. God is jealous with a holy zeal for his glory. So we should be careful to glorify and to honor and to worship him in the way that he wants. What we have in our text this morning are two contrasting pictures that teach us a great deal about the principle that governs the public worship of God. God reveals himself in two very important ways in our text. In both instances, he reveals himself by fire. But in the first instance, we have a manifestation of his grace. In the second, we have a manifestation of his wrath. In the first instance, we have a manifestation of his mercy. In the second, we have a manifestation of his judgment. These two radically different manifestations of God are the result of two radically different principles of worship. The first principle is illustrated for us by by Moses and Aaron. The second principle by Nadab and Abihu. And we'll take a closer look at what characterized each of these practices, and then we'll draw some conclusions as to what that means for our worship today. We see first the practice of Moses and Aaron. Last week we read in Leviticus chapter 9, the first worship service conducted in the tabernacle. And after Aaron performs all the sacrifices and and sprinkles all the blood and he, he turns and blesses the people, we read that this service was concluded by the glory of the Lord appearing unto all the people by a fire coming down from heaven to consume the sacrifices. This was God's stamp of approval on all that was done in their worship. This was God declaring his acceptance of the sacrifices that were offered for the sins of the people. Instead of his wrath coming down from heaven to consume the Israelites for their sins, God's wrath was poured out upon the sacrifices. He extended his blessing upon the worship of the Israelites. And why was that? It's because they approached him according to his command. When Leviticus describes what Aaron did in performing the sacrifices, it says repeatedly that he did as the Lord commanded. This characterized the worship of Moses and Aaron. They worshipped according to God's commands. They only did what they were commanded to do. They never added to it, and they never took away from it. And it's completely reasonable 
that this was their practice when coming to God in worship. This practice should make sense to us, given what we know about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. This conclusion followed naturally from what we covered last week. Since we, by our sins, have broken fellowship with God, he sets the rules on how to commune with him again. We are sinful people desiring to approach an infinite, holy, and glorious God. We must approach him on his terms. We don't get to set the rules. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, said that the reason why we worship God in such a casual way is because we don't see God in his glory. I would add to that that it's also because we see too much glory in ourselves. If we really understood the glory of God, and if we really understood the depravity of man, we would never think so highly of ourselves to think that we can determine the best way to approach God. To come to God in any other way than what he's commanded is to think too highly of ourselves. It's a form of pride and arrogance in ourselves. And Moses and Aaron understood this. They knew that it was only by the grace of God that they were given the privilege of approaching God at all. So they saw it necessary not to go beyond his command in the approach that they made to him. They weren't so foolish as to think that they could somehow improve upon what God commanded them to do. They followed his commands to the best of their ability. And in contrast to this, we see the practice of Nadab and Abihu. Now, the text doesn't tell us much about where exactly they went wrong. We're not given any specifics. And I don't think it's necessary to know the specifics because we're given enough information in the text to draw a general conclusion. The description we're given of what they did was they offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. What kind of fire this was exactly, we're not told. What's important is that God never commanded them not to do it, or God never commanded them to do it, and he also never commanded them not to do it. And so they went beyond the commands of God, and they tried to approach him on their own terms. They thought, in some sense, that they could improve upon the instructions that God gave to them for worship. It's a sad reality that this way of approaching worship is not uncommon at all. Most churches in our day operate with the same line of reasoning as Nadab and Abihu. People are all too often convinced that a command from God isn't necessary to justify an act of worship. All that's required 
is that God has not expressly forbidden it to be done. Stated another way, Nadab and Abihu and many churches in our day believe that unless God has told us not to do a particular thing in worship, then we are free to do it. So unless God has said that we can't have a rock band in church, then we're free to do it. Or unless God has said that we can't have a puppet show in church, then we're free to do it. Or unless God has said that we can't offer strange fire in the worship of God, then we're free to do it. This is all part of the same principle of worship. We call it the normative principle of worship. It teaches that any act of worship not forbidden by God is permitted by God. Nadab and Abihu followed this principle. And how did God respond to it? There went out a fire from the Lord, and he consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Unlike the fire of mercy that the Lord sent in response to Moses and Aaron, here we see a fire of judgment. Instead of God consuming the sacrifices with fire, we see God consuming the sacrificers with fire. And the only reason pointed out into our text as to why their worship was unacceptable was because they offered worship that God had not commanded. Now, there are many reasons in our day that are given to try to justify worship practices that are not commanded by God. And many of them sound legitimate at first. You might hear arguments from tradition. These kinds of arguments essentially say, well, this is the way that we've always done it, and we like it, so we are going to continue to do it. Instead of trying to support or defend their practice by Scripture, instead, appeal is made to the tradition of the church. And if these traditions are ever challenged in light of Scripture, the response is typically something like, well, what's the big deal? What's so wrong with it? And so the argument shifts to an argument of indifference, as if God isn't concerned with the things that we do in worship. This question of what's wrong with it is the wrong question to ask when we're talking about public worship. The question to ask whenever we want to include an act of worship in our church, is not what's wrong with it. The question is, what's right with it? What command of God makes this practice right or acceptable to include in our service? So whenever you have a thought about what we should do in worship, you, you should ask yourself, what command of God makes this necessary? If there's no command of God, it shouldn't be done in worship. 
And as a follow-up to this, sometimes you'll hear an appeal to emotion. People will argue, well, doing X, Y, and Z in worship makes me feel close to God. I can really feel the Spirit at work in a church that does this in their worship. But our emotions and our feelings don't govern our worship. And the Spirit only promises to bless the worship that God commands. If you want to get close to God in worship, then follow his commands. Don't add to them and don't take from them. Lastly, there are also arguments from popularity. The intention with these kind of arguments is is generally good. Oftentimes the goal is to try to attract people to come to church. And they'll argue that we need music and and preaching and, and teaching that appeals to the masses so that more people would come through our doors. The intention here is good. We should want more people to come to our church. Even unbelievers, we should want them to come to our church. And we certainly shouldn't put up roadblocks that would deter people from coming to our church. But quite frankly, when it comes to public worship, what appeals to the flesh is irrelevant. Worship isn't regulated by anyone's personal preferences. Neither is worship regulated by the the preference of the culture around us. We're not offering worship to the spirit of our age. We are offering worship to God. And so the only only the preferences of God should, should impact what we do in worship. One of the most fundamental aspects of Reformed theology is the emphasis that's placed on the sufficiency of Scripture. The Reformation began with an application of this principle to what's called soteriology, to the way in which we are saved. We are justified by our faith in Christ alone. We don't need to add the traditions of men or or any good works in order to be justified before God. But some Christians, like the Lutherans, for example, they failed to apply the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture to the worship of the Christian church. They embraced this normative principle of worship. But this principle rejects, ultimately, sola scriptura, the doctrine of Scripture alone, the sufficiency of Scripture. It rejects it when it comes to divine worship. And so we are forced to reject the normative principle of worship. And instead, we abide by the worship illustrated by Moses and Aaron. They've provided for us the true principle of public worship. Over and against the normative principle, which would allow us to do anything that God hasn't forbidden us to do in worship, we affirm what's called the regulative principle of worship. 
The regulative principle of worship is essentially a consistent application of sola scriptura, of the sufficiency of scripture. We believe that in the scriptures, God has equipped us with all that we need in order to worship him appropriately. There's no need to add to it or to take from it. In fact, the regulative principle of worship would argue that to modify what God has appointed to be done in his worship would be sinful. And so unlike the normative principle, the regulative principle teaches us that any act of worship not commanded by God is forbidden by him. So when it comes to our worship and our way of approaching God in worship, if God hasn't told us to do a particular thing in worship, then he has forbidden us from doing it. I think this is made abundantly clear in our text this morning. God never forbids strange fire to be offered unto him. But he never commanded it either. And so when it was offered to him, he rejected it. At this first public worship of God in the tabernacle, God sends a clear message to the Israelites. He says, I will accept the worship that obeys my commands. But I will reject any worship that goes beyond what I've commanded. God pours out his blessing upon obedient worship, and he pours out his wrath upon invented worship. That is, those, those worship practices that we create out of the mere will of our hearts. This is what the confession of our church teaches. The Westminster Confession gives us the best summary of this teaching, I think. It says, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture." You see, man has not been given the authority by God to create or to invent for himself any new ways of worship. If we truly understood worship in its proper sense as making an approach unto God, then we would understand why this is so important. When we approach God, we must come in the way that he has prescribed. We cannot invent any new ways of coming to him. He makes the rules. Our duty is to obey them. Now, this teaching implies a few things. First, the intention of the heart is not enough to justify invented forms of worship. Most of the time, when a new way of worshiping God is created, 
It was created out of a desire to honor God. It's like we don't know exactly what was on the heart of Nadab and Abihu. But they very well could have been offering that strange fire out of a heart that loved and honored God. They also saw the glory of the Lord descend from heaven. And they also saw the sacrifices consumed by the fire. And their response was an act of worship. But they worshiped in a way that God had not commanded. And therefore it was forbidden. William Perkins, another English Puritan, he said that the intention to honor God is not always good unless it be an intention to honor him by yielding obedience to that which he commands. Sometimes the desire to honor and worship God is actually sinful if we plan to honor and worship him in a way that he has not commanded. The intention of the heart is not enough to justify invented forms of worship. Second, the regulative principle of worship implies that all invented forms of worship are inherently superstitious. This follows naturally from the simple definition we have of worship. If worship is a drawing near to God or making an approach unto God, then the acts of worship we perform are the means of bringing us closer to God. Now, the only things that can actually bring us closer to God are those things which he has appointed for that purpose. But now to argue that our invented forms of worship, these things born solely by the will of man, to argue that they also can bring us closer to God is to attribute spiritual significance to ordinary means without a reason. And that's the essence of superstition. To attribute spiritual significance to ordinary means without the sanction of God. God forbids us to engage in superstition. We cannot attribute religious or spiritual significance to ordinary things without a warrant from God himself. To do so would be, by definition, superstitious. I like Robert Shaw, a Scottish theologian, in his commentary on the Westminster Confession. He says, to introduce into the worship of God a religious ceremony under the pretext of beautifying the worship and exciting the devotion of the worshipers is to be guilty of superstition and will worship. We don't have the freedom to add things into worship by our own will. 
And we cannot add something to our worship because we have attached some kind of religious significance to it. We do what God has commanded. Nothing more and nothing less. We could, of course, go on to list some more implications from this teaching. But for time's sake, we'll, we'll move on to respond to two common objections to the regular principle. The first objection is the argument that the regular, regular, regulative principle cannot be true because God doesn't prescribe everything necessary for worship. For example, God gives us no stated times to assemble for worship. God gives us no instruction about where to meet for worship. And God doesn't tell us how many songs to sing and, and things of that matter. These are all things that we must decide for ourselves. And, and so the argument goes, therefore, God's worship cannot be regulated as we've described it. To respond briefly to this, we distinguish between circumstances and elements of worship. Elements of worship are those religious actions that God instructs us to perform in our worship. These are all regulated by him, and we could not add to or take away from them. However, he does leave to our discretion certain circumstances of worship. These are simply helps that allow us to to facilitate or to carry out our worship in a proper and orderly way. But the important thing to realize here is that the circumstances of worship are all non-religious in nature. They do not involve devising new ways of approaching God in worship. So we can have electricity in our church. We can have air conditioning in our church. We can set up a time to meet for church. We can own a church building. These are not religious in nature. And so they are not forbidden by the regulative principle. But the second objection is also very common. And it goes something like this. You maybe can make a good argument for the regulative principle from the Old Testament, but things are different in the New Testament. Worship isn't like that anymore. Jesus has done away with those harsh and rigid laws, and now we can worship more freely. Our, our response, first of all, is that God has not changed. God was jealous over his worship in the Old Testament, and God is jealous over his worship in the New Testament. He's just as jealous over his worship today as he was in Leviticus chapter 10. And so this text in Leviticus ought to instruct us on how we worship today for this reason. God is a jealous God. His name is jealous. The coming of Christ 
doesn't allow us to worship God in any way that we see fit. If anything, Hebrews chapter 12 implies that we ought to follow God's commands more strictly in worship. In the second half of Hebrews chapter 12, Paul shows us how heaven is much greater than the tabernacle. And Jesus is much greater than Moses and Aaron. And if that's the case, should we not approach God with more reverence and with more fear than the Israelites did? If they had to be careful to worship God only as he commanded back then, when they were worshiping the tabernacle, serving in the tabernacle, then how much more should we be careful to worship God as he commands today when we serve Christ? In fact, this is exactly what Paul implies in Hebrews chapter 12. He says in verse 28, Let us serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. And why should we do this? Why should we be careful to serve God in a way that he finds acceptable in the New Testament? This is in the New Testament. We read in verse 29, Because our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews points us back to Nadab and Abihu. He commands us, to be careful to worship God correctly and acceptably because God has not changed. He is still a consuming fire, even today. And in closing, let's consider what we should take away from all of this. And for time's sake, we'll point to one thing in particular. And that is that in some sense, we are all Nadab and Abihus. Even the most externally pure worship of ours is tainted with the strange fire of an impure heart. So we never truly worship God as we should. We never truly bring him pure worship. So what should we do? We ought to look to the sacrifice of the Son of God. We ought to pray for his blood to cover the sins of our worship. We ought to pray for his blood to satisfy the wrath of God against our worship. We ought to repent of the distractions and, and the lusts of our hearts that so often corrupt our worship. Thanks be to God that he's provided a truly perfect and acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. Thanks be to God that he's provided a sacrifice that has taken away sin. Thanks be, be to God that he's provided a sacrifice that has endured the fire of God's wrath for us. We would all be consumed 
if not for him. Amen.